You awake? Yeah. All right. Good. Because today I had to get up super early to prepare for our next guest because this is what happens when you interview incredibly cool, creative people. You think you're going to be simply writing an interview, but instead you end up going down the rabbit hole of all the cool projects that then involved in instead. And I knew this was going to happen with our next guest. Our guest this month is someone who has made his mark on the local and international music scene in a big way. He shows no signs of stopping. He is trumpet player, composer, arranger, and producer Reinald Colomb. Born in France, he began studying music at the age of of four and eventually took up the trumpet at the ripe old age of eight. He studied under André Spelich, the renowned soloist of the Orchestre de Paris, which I realize I'm pronouncing that like a Spanish person, but hey, I've lived in Barcelona for 10 years now. Reinald went on to study with big names in jazz music, such as Wynton Marsalis, Clark Terry, Roy Hargrove. He spent time in New York, he spent time in Paris, he's traveled the world. He has collaborated with a long list of acclaimed artists, not only in the world of jazz, but also in the worlds of pop, world beat, and flamenco. He has racked up a ton of accolades and awards along the way, including Album of the Year by Ender Rock, Best Trumpet Player several years running by the Association of Jazz and Modern Music and Musicians of Catalonia, and his sixth album comes out on the 20th of this month. When Reynald is not recording or touring, he also teaches, he gives tallers. His philosophy as a teacher has to do with preparing his students not only creatively, but also preparing them for the world in which they are going to live if they choose to make their living as a professional musician. So without further ado, please welcome to the Metropolitan Culture Corner, Reynald Colomb. You need to be aware that this is an industry and you need to be at the same level musically, at the same level in business. For me, the best thing you need to learn is when to say no. So you better learn the business because if not, you're not going to eat three times a day, you're not going to have a roof and you're going to be cold. You need to take care of that industry and you need to be super clear about what you want to do in your career. And that's always what I say to younger generations when I'm teaching in, in uh, workshops. I'm always like, try to find like really who you are. You need to make mixtapes, you know, the way to learn. And also you need to adapt to what the industry is. Now the industry is totally different. But at the same time, trying to not touch the part of the music, which is why you're in the industry. What's up? How you doing? Welcome and thank you for doing this interview with us. I know you started playing music when you were really young, like four years old. So as a really, really little kid, do you remember the first song or artist or kind of music that really made an impression on you? Actually, that's a lot of them. Oh, give me the list, it's your list. <laughs> I'm gonna start with my father. You know, my father is a musician too. He's a great clarinet player and saxophone player. So that was the first music I was hearing at home. We were living in Paris and my father was working at the Orchestre de Paris. So I remember seeing the great director and pianist, Daniel Barenboim. So when I was around four or five, you know, my father was taking me to the rehearsal. That was also a big, big impact to see like 120 guys playing music, like boom, you know. Mainly my father. He's really like my main influence. So you come in with like all this music from the time you were really small. But what made you decide then to pick up the trumpet, which would eventually become your instrument? That's a funny story because I started with violin, right? So I did four years between four and eight. Wasn't really my thing. You know what I mean? Wasn't really something that I was copying. And I remember one day after school, I, I think I was watching TV or something like that, some cartoons. And my father arrived and he arrived with a trumpet. And he said, you want to try that? And I tried and I make a sound. And I said, I love it. So I think that was really love at first sight. 
No, I always believe you don't choose an instrument, the instrument chooses you. And I guess like the trumpet chooses me, you know. I just love that image of you watching cartoons and finding your love of the trumpet in that moment. So what was your first time on stage like with the trumpet? How old were you and what was that about? Wow, that's actually funny. We already moved to Spain from France and I kind of really love the tuba, <laughs> right? So a friend of my father let uh, a bombardino, which is a little bit smaller, but it's still big, you know, like for uh, 10, almost 11, something like that. My father was doing a gig and uh, they invite me to play the tuba. And I said like, yes. And they put me that big, you know, like those tubas like that with a bell here, right? Yeah. Man, was bigger than me. So I said, they put that, but of course I was extremely nervous and that's a really big instrument. So I remember seeing like the tuba player was in front of me and telling me like what, real thing I had to play. So that was kind of my first time going on stage. But the first gig ever I did was a year after when I was 11. My father was playing at the jazz festival they made back in the days in Andorra. He was playing with traditional jazz, you know, like kind of old school, Ray Armstrong band. And they were playing like every day in different places. And I was playing in the band too with my father. And when we finished, the owner of the festival at that time, Tony Thorzano, said, look, the kid work as hard as you, so the kid gonna get paid too. So my first gig was at 11, you know, like paid gigs. So that was really like the first time that I realized, okay, that's what I'm gonna do the rest of my life. That's very cool to know that festival directors like that exist or existed in the world. Yeah, yeah, you know, like that, like that someone who make you understand that what you do have value. And I'm always gonna be thankful and I feel I'm blessed because all the people I had around, you know, like they really, really were supportive all the time. Just like, okay, the kid really want to do that. We're going to help him to get in the right path. And then did you eventually find people of your own age and start putting together combos or something? Was it before you moved to New York after you started playing? At 14, I was already doing gigs, mostly with my dad. At 15 or 16, I remember I went down to the Tayeda Musics, which is a music school in Barcelona. Like it's kind of the first music school that like show how to learn jazz and all that. And I went there to a jam session and that night I met all the musicians I still know today. A uh, guitar player called Marcelino Galan, the great Marca Iza, the drummer from Barcelona, Gim Garcia, you know, a lot of them. We started playing together, you know, and you start, you know, playing little bands and all that, but we were like going really deep in it, you know, going to the studio, recording three or four tunes and trying to get the gigs, you know, like we were already really on a mission. Playing extremely bad because the level wasn't there, but you know, like the attitude was there. That was a good way because I kind of in and out went to music schools because I didn't feel it at all, because I had everything I needed at home. So that was kind of my school experience, playing straight with the friends, making all the mistakes you can do. But that was real, you know, that was not something in a teaching room with a teacher, an assignment. You know, you had to get on stage and you had to play. So the mistakes were, everybody can hear them, you know. You need real experience to really understand certain things. You can read about it, you can think about it, but having the experience makes you hone body and mind and heart totally in a different place because suddenly you got an audience, so everything changed. It is really, really important to hit the stage as much as you can. Are there aspects of, for example, specifically being at Berkeley or in New York or specific aspects of being in Barcelona with the Taller de Musics guys or being in France? Are there aspects of each of these places that have really impacted you musically speaking or even just personally? Because that comes out in the music too. Each one got a specific thing. I kind of see it like, you know, the mosaics Gaudi does. 
but little pieces you put together and that make the whole. I really learned in Terrassa because we lived in Terrassa and at that time I was going to the great club of La Nova Jascava. So over there I met Ray Brown, I met Roy Hargrove, I take a class with Roy Hargrove when I was 15. I was really immersed in there and what better to have in your own town have a jazz club. So I was like all day long over there, you know, like practicing over there and all that. Plus going to Barcelona, playing with all those guys, you know, like trying to put your thing together. My friends told me, man, you have to go to Berkeley. Why don't you apply, you know, for the scholarship? And I did. And I went there and I stayed for two semesters. This is a great school, don't get me wrong. This is a very, very great school. One thing is being in Europe and the other thing is going to the States, being like on the real world of so-called jazz music, right? Going straight to New York would be too much. So Boston is a really good place where you're gonna learn people you're gonna play for the next 20 years. But in the way they were teaching the music, I was 18, I was already doing gigs, I was already touring. Compared to the other guy of my age, I was kind of more seasoned already. They got ratings about like the level of the musicians, from rating to one to rating 10. That was a big conflict for me because I, I don't think arts can be rated. You got good music or bad music, you got good art or bad art, but you can rate in, the, in between that. So that kind of take me off. So I kind of really go my way. I went straight to one teacher I wanted to have who was Bill Pierce, who played with Art Blakey and played with Tony Williams and all that. So that was the guy. I wanted to be with a teacher who was a real musician because a lot of teachers were just guys who get finished their career over there and start teaching. So it's like, man, I'm not going to be in a place where the teacher have less experience than me. And after two semesters, I said, look, that's not for me. I don't care about the title or all the thing. And that's when I decide to come back here work in any gig I could do, make money, go to New York, spend three months because that was the maximum you could stay there without having a visa. And I did that for a long time, for a lot of years, you know, like every time I got enough money going to New York, get my ass kicked every single night, every single night, which is a blessing. And that was kind of my life. So if you put all that together, that become what, what I am now. Do you feel like that experience of getting your ass kicked every night in New York, as you said, helped you when it comes to collaborating with all these different people? Because you work with people who are super different styles. In case our readers don't know, Greg Oswald is a pop artist in London. Nicholas Payton, jazz, Vicente Amigo, flamenco, legend, Mano Chao. It's like world beats, sky, mestito, nadie sabe, no? So all these different people. Were the tools you got in New York helpful? Or was this just in life as you go types and you learn? That was kind of at the same time. Because when I went on tour with Manu Chao, I think I was 21 or 22. I was here, I went to New York for a couple of months, came back, the first run was like five months with like South America and the States and all that. But for me, the main thing, I love music. And when I was young, the best advice I got from all my mentors was try to get as much experience you can in every aspect of the industry and the music. Because I understand people get in one style and really focus on it and get better at it. But I believe music is so open. And myself, I can define myself as a French guy or Spanish or Catalan. or I'm more like a world citizen in that aspect. So I always treated the way of the music like that, right? The first thing I recorded in flamenco was totally out. I was doing a blues session in a studio in Barcelona and Chicuelo, the great flamenco guitarist, we knew each other, we talked already. And called me said, man, why don't you come to the, to the studio? We're recording with El Duquende, the great flamenco singer. And I was like, 
word, I'm gonna get there, see how they work and all that. I take a cab from that session, went to the other, right there. And when I arrived, I was Chicuelo and Duquende and no one else. And a mic and a chair. And I was like, ah, who's recording? And they're like, you, you're gonna record. And I was like, what? What? I said, look, that's uh, Alegria, Alegria. I was like, I don't know what an Alegria is. I have no idea. And Chicuelo was like, but that's why we want you. You know, like just play your thing. And that's how I started with the flamenco, because after that, Duquende called me and I learned to play that on stage. So all those experiences came kind of at the same time, so everything was building up on the same level. In the world of jazz and in the world of flamenco, as you know, so you get a lot of people who are very traditionalist in the sense that if you're not, for example, from Chicago, from New York, from New Orleans, you can't understand this music. If you're not a Gitano, you can't understand this music. So it's fortunate and interesting that you've run across people from those those worlds that don't see it that way at all. Chicuelo was really my teacher because after that we went to Japan for a month with a great Japanese flamenco dancer called Soji Kojima. He must be like 75 something, but like he's one of the greats. He's just amazing. So the whole month I remember being in the hotel room and I was calling Chicuelo every day and Chicuelo was coming to my room and showing me. I was like, okay, I want to understand. So Chicuelo was like, okay, this is this and that, but we never talk in a methodic way. What I love about flamenco is like from one guy, the information go to the other guy, you know, like that, which is something in the jazz world is kind of lost because of the schools. I really dig that. And after I remember I was going down to the south by myself, you know, when I got three days going to Granada and going to the flamenco places, wait until four o'clock in the morning when everybody was coming. And I was just there and try to play. And sometimes they were like, not now. And after they're like, yeah. And after that, until six or seven o'clock in the morning, talking with all flamenco guys and explaining me like little tricks. It was really organic. And at the end, it is really similar to what black American music. I don't like the term jazz. I think jazz is racist and becomes something really stuffy. There is a lot of similarities because both music came from Africa. So there is a big connection. So you've done all these incredible tours, collaborations, learned from other people. What's the difference, if there is a difference, in the way that you approach a collaboration with another artist and the way that you approach composing or arranging for your own album projects? I would say in the same way, because that really depends on how in the industry you want to be. I think you have to make a decision when you start your career about what you aim in the music, right? A lot of really great friends and amazing musicians who are studio musicians, right? The guys, they arrive for a project, and they're like, okay, we want this like that. And they do it like that. You know, like that chameleon way to really get into what a producer or the artist wants. LA session musicians, Madrid session musicians, Barcelona, you know, like this is a big craft. But I decided earlier that my main goal was to try to have my own sound, to really work on a sound that is distinctive. So when I got a call from other artists, I think they know like if they call me, they're gonna have Ray. It's not like I'm gonna try to play like this or like that. So I think it's the same way when I do my projects. The process is kind of the same thing because I'm just trying to be as real as I can to make music that really is about the time I'm living. When I did my first two albums, you know, you're more young, you know, so you kind of need that security to have like everything kind of more really put together and all that. The older I get with the band I got now, I don't do set lists. Sometimes we're just going somewhere that we never been and that is the place I want to be now. Like in that unknown place where 
you don't have anything to you know to grab so you're really really free so i guess it just change as you change too you know Speaking of your albums, your new album comes out in just a few days. This was recorded live in Italy with a quartet, if I'm not mistaken. So what's the exactly. story behind this album and why the title, A Million Dreams? After a long, long time that I feel I have a working band again. Because I had just an album who came before with Gregory Hutchinson, Joe Sanders and Danny Grisset. World-class musicians were always busy. So I call my brother a great Italian drummer called Francesco Cinillo and my other brother Tony Tixier, French guy from Paris, piano player. Do you know when you get on stage and everything gets together? This is not my band anymore. This is a band, you know, like we all together. There is no leadership. And that's why I love we did that live recording because this is how band works. It's always surprising on stage. Like Greg Osby told me, when the music, when, you, when you're there and you're almost falling but you don't fall, that's when the magic happens. So that album is really about that. That concept of a band playing together and really having a big interaction and with the audience too, you know what I mean? People kind of like, ah oh, man, we don't like jazz because musicians play for themselves. You don't do that for you. You do that, you know, like for the whole, for you, for, for the audience and everything. So once you're really connected, you know, the audience get connected too. And that album is really about that. The most close to the live experience people can be. And why the title? Why did you choose that particular title? That title came from an interview they did to the great composer Duke Ellington. They asked him a question, he said, what are your thoughts when you're playing music? And his answer was a million dreams. And that's really resonating me because it, it happens not that much. That moment when everything is connected, that you don't feel it's you making the music, the music is just really happening and everything is aligned. You don't think about notes or anything, you just, you're just being there. And that's the same concept, you know, like a million dreams, right? It's suddenly everything is aligned and you can really see the, the vastity of what life can be. I mean, at least that's how I feel it. This is one of the worst questions ever and I'm highly aware. But if somebody said, your record collection is gone, you could save one record from a fire or something, which would it be? I have him. Miles Davis plus 19 with Gilevans. I've been hearing that album since I'm six, seven years old. I could sing like every part of the album and that's with all the big orchestra. And this is kind of the sound of my life. So it could be that album because I'm never ever gonna get tired to listen to that. I've read that you've said that you are a self-confessed obsessive of the Russian composer Alexander Scriabin. Yeah. Color symbolism. Scriabin had what's called synesthesia. I, I say it like a Spanish person. Synesthesia mm -hmm. in English. What is it about his system that attracts you, or do you actually yourself have synesthesia and see color when you play? No, I don't. I I, I don't have it. But the more I grew up, the more my inspiration comes from other than music. I'm a junkie to go to museums and watch art. I'm a big, big obsess of Miro because he's a guy like Coltrane, you know, like they work on all the technique they can have. And at the end of their life, that was just like a stroke. And that stroke is so powerful. You got a lifetime behind and it gives you so much. I see colors when I play. Certain chords, certain things. And imagine you're like something is totally black and suddenly like those colors appear. When I play, that's what I see when I write music. So thinking about like about that color with that color, that gives you another one, you know, like, so it's the same thing when you take a chord and another chord that could clash, but if you put them together, that better tension that is beautiful with the color of the music. 
which is super connected to this guy. Is there anything else you'd like to add about your upcoming record that I haven't asked you? One thing that's really important to me, really big shootout to Logan Richardson and his label Wax Industry, who we're putting that album out. And this is in collaboration with another friend of mine called Michael Janish, a genius bass player. He got his label called Whirlwind Records. Between the two, they put my album out. So in those times, having friends who are artists and got their own label, everybody collaborates between each other. It's not just a company, it's like musicians who made the company and it worked great. So, os quiero tíos. <laughs> Without a team, you can do anything. Agreed. Well, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. I'm looking forward to listening to your album. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I'm a big fan of yours too. So, you know, it is great to talk to you. Always, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Metropolitan Culture Quarter Familia, you see why I love doing these interviews. I enjoy so much hearing an artist like Reynald talk about where he comes from, what he does, what he loves, what he's passionate about, what he's not willing to tolerate. Very few people get the opportunity to sit down with these incredible artists who have this really fascinating career and, and also fascinating perspectives on life and get to just hear them say it, no filter. They're in their house and they take the time to share their thoughts on art, on music, on life, on business with us, with you. So be on the lookout for this man's concerts and also be on the lookout for new works by all of the incredible people that we've taken the time to interview on the Metropolitan Culture Corner. First Monday of every month on the official Metropolitan YouTube channel and SoundCloud channel as a convenient podcast. You can also leave us a comment on the Metropolitan YouTube channel, Facebook page, Twitter feed, all that social media stuff, and let us know who you would like to see interviewed next month or the month after that, and we will do the best we can to make that happen. In the meantime, be happy, be safe, support live music, Bye local, and until next time, same time, same channel.